You're listening to Men of Abundance, episode 208 with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Today we're talking about binge eating, and have you ever considered what food you eat based on the stresses in your life? Glenn and I are going to have that conversation and more. Welcome to Men of Abundance, the podcast for those looking to level up their lives by hanging out with some of the greatest leaders and established professionals in our community, living a life of integrity, honor, and the abundance mentality. Prepare to pay it forward with your host, former army medic turned lifestyle entrepreneur, Wally Carmichael. What is going on, Men of Abundance? I am Wally Carmichael, your founder and host of the Men of Abundance podcast, the Pay It Forward community. I am so excited to be here. I have a little bit of announcement to make. I'm making a few changes. Well, basically just one change. Uh, And that is I'm going to go from a two, well, I went from a a three-day-a-week to a two-day-a-week and now to a a one-day-a-week show. And the reason why is because I've gotten caught up on all the guests that I have And I have more guests lined up. Of course, I have many recorded already. But I'm going to start trickling them out over one day a week for a couple reasons. One, because I'm in the process of transitioning from Hawaii to Tampa, Florida. As a result of that, my schedule is very filled up, along with me traveling, going to spend time with family. I'm not going to be doing any recording or very, very little recording during the month, the rest of June and part of July. I have quite a few conversations already recorded and ready to go. I just need to do the editing and get that out. All that takes time. And on top of that, I'm spending much more time with small business owners in coaching them in business and marketing strategies. Now, look, Men of Abundance is definitely not going away. I'm just going to be doing one. I'm just going to be launching one day a week show instead of two because it's extremely time consuming. One for the interviews, which I absolutely love to do. I'll do that regardless of whether I was recording them or not. But doing the editing and the show art and the show notes and all that kind of stuff, everything else, it really adds up. The time adds up. So I have to allocate and manage my time where it's more important right now in my time in my life, where I want to spend time with family and I want to build my coaching business. Now, this is a lesson in time management, and this is a lesson in balance. There's never really true balance in your life. As long as you want to increase one part of your life or improve one part of your life, be it relationships, be it your business, job, health, whatever it is, there's going to be a counterbalance in your life. You're going to have to spend more time in one area than the other. I've been living without my family pretty much since September. Now, I have been traveling back and forth between Hawaii and Florida, But I have not been spending the time with my family that I enjoy spending with my family. So over the rest of June and into July, all of July, I'm basically going to be doing a whole lot of family time, much more family time than anything. And I'm still going to be doing Men of Abundance. I'm going to record a bunch of episodes so they're already in queue and ready to go. And I'm going to be obviously spending time with coaching businesses in business and marketing strategies because, quite frankly, Brother's got to make money. You know what I'm saying? So I need to do that as well. I don't want to neglect that. I hope you understand that. I greatly appreciate your support. Now, at some point, once I get back in the swing of things, get the coaching business rolling really good, get time back with the family, then I may go back to a two a week show. Who knows? Maybe even a three a week show, but let's not push it. All right. So, guys, before I introduce our featured guest today, 
I want you to be abundant in your life today by paying it forward and sharing men of abundance with everyone you come in contact with. It's not difficult at all. It's very simple, actually. It's very simple to copy the URL menofabundance.com, paste it into an email, send it to somebody in a text message, put it on your Facebook, Twitter, whatever the case. You can't put links on Instagram. Got that. But put the links out there. Share it with people. Tell people. Share. Click on the share on, on Facebook. When you see this on Facebook, every time I do a podcast episode and it posts, it automatically posts to Facebook, it automatically posts to YouTube, and it automatically posts to other social media. Wherever it is that you're listening to this at, there's a share button. Click on the share button, share it in that platform or share it in other platforms. I greatly appreciate it, and so will they. The people you share Men of Abundance with are going to come back and thank you for introducing them to these amazing conversations, these amazing men and women living a life of abundance and paying it forward to you and showing you that they have kick-in-the-gut moments as well. They, too, have fallen on hard times, and they figured out a way to get out of those hard times and, in some cases, turn their mess into their message and helping other people, paying it forward. It's just a beautiful thing to do. I want you to live the same abundant lifestyle. I want you to be able to pay it forward, and I would love to, some at some point, talk about your kick-in-the-gut moments. Guys, you can connect with us in our closed Facebook group, on at menofabundance.com it's facebook just search menofabundance.com or go in the show notes and click on or go to menofabundance.com click on members only you can go down there scroll down and request access to the men of abundance facebook group community do that right away go over there and get in on the conversation now, our featured guest today is Dr. Glenn Livingston. He is a veteran psychologist and was the longtime CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has served several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. You may have seen some of his previous work theories and research in major periodicals like the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Sun-Times, the Indian Star-Ledger, the New York Daily News, American Demographics, or any of the other major media outlets, or any of the other major media outlets you will see in the show notes. Disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food-obsessed individuals, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal healthy weight and a much more lighthearted relationship with food. Men of Abundance, it is my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Glenn Livingston. Glenn, welcome to Men of Abundance. How are you doing? I am doing phenomenal. I've been looking forward to talking to you all week, and I'm excited to be here. <laughs> That's awesome. I appreciate that, and the same for same for you. Where are you at in the world? At the moment, I'm in Portland, Oregon, but I'm about to move to Pensacola, Florida. Really? Because I I prefer some place warm. Yeah, <laughs> I used to love I used to love the cold weather. I lived in New Hampshire for 14 years because I yeah. wanted to hike the ice, icy waterfalls, but I turned 50 and my bones got cold. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just turned 49 a couple weeks ago on the 5th of May. And um, my family has been in Tampa, Florida since September, and I'm moving there at the end of June. Oh. I'm, I'm currently in Hawaii, and I'm moving to Florida because I like warm weather. <laughs> 
That's interesting. Yeah, so I've been here for about 10 years. The other guys that's been listening for a while know this already, but I've been here for about 10 years, and it's just time to get off the rock and go travel a little bit more. Okay. Well, we'll uh, have to have lunch. Absolutely. We'll yeah, we'll, we'll definitely. State. Absolutely, okay. for sure. I'll definitely look forward to that. So before we get too much into our conversation, I like to start out with an attitude of gratitude. What do you have to be grateful for today? Today I am grateful that I have my health that I've reconnected with my girlfriend who I'm desperately in love with, that I have a best-selling book that empowers me to help hundreds of thousands of people to overcome a problem that dogged me for 30 years, and that I might not be rich, but I've got more than enough enough money to do everything that I want to do in this world and more. Wow, absolutely love that attitude. Uh, Your book is part of what really intrigued me about having this conversation with you um, because there's so many different techniques and so many different things out there. And some things, they all work to some degree, but not all of them work for everybody. So it's great to have all these different conversations, and I'm very excited about seeing your perspective from your background and your experience and where that went. But before we do that, and we will get into that before we do. How would you describe yourself? I would describe myself as a six foot four teddy bear with an odd sense of humor. <laughs> I like the odd sense of humor part, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, mine's kind of off the wall sometimes. I get in trouble. Um, my wife kicks me under the table once in a while. People, people that like me tell me that I'm delightfully weird. People who... <laughs> don't they think i'm just odd (laughs) you know what though in our circles we don't see each other as weird we just we're the normal everybody else is weird absolutely (laughs) absolutely yes yeah that's that's what i see anyway yeah i agree yeah so um some tell us a little bit more about your background and and what you've been up to and, and kind of you know a synopsis of what brought you here today I'm a psychologist from a family of 17 therapists. Oh, my. My mom and my dad and my sister and my sister's husband and my mom's husband. and My mother passed away now. My father's wife and my grandparents and my cousins and my uncles and my aunts. They are all therapists. And we often joke that if something breaks in the house, we all know how to ask it how it feels, but nobody knows how to fix it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that that's what it was like for, well, yeah so it's its particularly it's always been particularly important to me to be a psychologist first and foremost even though I spent my life in various entrepreneurial pursuits and I also had a very serious eating problem which I didn't think was a problem at first because I'm 6 foot 4 and fairly muscular In my teenage years, I discovered that if I worked out for two and a half or three hours a day, that I could eat anything I wanted to. Mm. Two pizzas, boxes of muffins, boxes of Pop-Tarts, chocolate, um, you know, breadsticks, anything you could imagine. I just, I couldn't out-eat my ability to exercise. But when I got older and I got married and I had responsibilities and patience and a commute. I couldn't spend hours every day working out. I could barely find two hours a week to work out. And my metabolism slowed down and I just started getting fat. 
and I, I found I couldn't stop thinking about food as much as I was. I developed these patterns where my whole, my whole, it's almost like I lived to eat. And I went to the psychological route to try to solve it because the doctors were telling me that I was going to die by the time I was 35 of a heart attack because my triglycerides were through the roof. They were well over 1,100. I think I have a test that I saved where they were 826, but they're supposed to be about 150 or or less. So my triglycerides were through the roof, had other blood lipid problems, and the doctor said I was going to die, and I had to do something. Moreover, I was so obsessed with food that I'd be sitting with patients for whom you had to be really present. Like, if you work with a suicidal patient, you can't be sitting there and wondering when the next time you're going to get to the delicatessen is to dislodge your jaw and empty the contents of the deli tray into it. You really need to be focused and clear and present for that client. And I'd be working with those kind of clients, I'd be working with people after a divorce, and I was horrified at how much of my mind was always on the food. So I wasn't being a great psychologist, I was putting my life in jeopardy, and I was not in a great marriage also, so things were very stressful. Being from a family of psychologists, I went to every psychological vehicle you could imagine. I went to the best psychologists in New York City, because I knew a lot of them. I went to eating disorder specialists, I went to a psychiatrist to take medication, I went to Overeaters Anonymous, and it was a very soulful journey and I learned important things from each of them, but none of them helped me to really stop binging. It got a little better, then it would get worse, and then it would get even worse than it was before I went to see them. And I'm not sorry that I did it because I learned a lot of things about myself along the way, but it it didn't help. Eventually, because I, I don't have children and I never commuted, so I did have a lot of time in my hands and I had a dual career, I I had been doing a lot of consulting for Fortune 500 companies, a whole bunch of them in the food industry, and I decided that I was going to run the the same type of a research project that they were paying me a lot of money to run. I decided that I would do one for myself to see if I could figure this out. So I set up this survey online, and I recruited over the course of several years 40,000 people to participate in it. This is when internet clicks were very cheap. And I did a whole set of statistical analyses on them. And and the study itself, we asked people what foods they had trouble resisting. And we asked them all types of things about their life and personality. And I found three really interesting things. I found that people who struggle with chocolate, like I do, my binges usually started with chocolate. I always joke that my sister can take two little squares of chocolate out of her purse and put the rest back for later and say she's going to have it on Saturday. And I don't know what's wrong with that woman because two little squares of chocolate, at least six bars for me. It just, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that doesn't how, make sense to me either. How can anybody be satisfied with two squares? I just don't get it. Um, but I discovered that people who struggle with chocolate tend to be lonely or brokenhearted. Hmm. That made sense. It sense I was in a troubled marriage and I, I thought, okay, that, that, it's kind of interesting. People who struggle with salty, crunchy things like chips they tend to be stressed at work, and people who struggle with with soft, starchy things like bread or bagels tend to be stressed at home. Those are the three things that I found. And so I figured that I could just focus on those psychological problems on the theory that it's not what you're eating, it's what's eating you, and 
maybe there's some way to love myself out of sort of the, help my patients to love themselves out of this. So I decided to do a little more investigation and I asked my mom, who raised me and is also a therapist, said, Mom, how did this happen? Why, why do I rent the chocolate if I feel lonely or brokenhearted or depressed? And she got this horrible look on her face. And she said, honey, I'm so embarrassed, but you know, when you were a boy, when you were about one year old, your dad was in the army, he was a captain, and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam, and I was terrified. At the same time, your grandfather, my father, had just gotten out of prison. And I had been devastated because I had adored him and loved him my whole life. And I didn't know he was involved with those things. And he was guilty. He'd really done it. And I was just, I was just tremendously de- – it's okay. Go ahead. I was just tremendously depressed. And I didn't have the wherewithal to hold you and feed you appropriately when you came – running to me crying. So what I did was I got a refrigerator and kept it on the floor, and I always made sure it was stocked with a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup. The brand is defunct, I think, now, so I'm Mm -hmm. dating myself. (laughs) And I would say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And you'd run over to the refrigerator, and you'd get the chocolate bottle out out of the refrigerator, and you'd suck on it, and you'd go into a sugar coma. And so, see, Wally, if this was the movies, I would have a great big hug and a cry with my mom and we'd forgive each other and I would never struggle with chocolate again. But it's not the movies. We, we had the great big hug and the cry and we did forgive each other and I felt more compassionate towards myself and I said, okay, this is the match that struck the fire. But things actually got worse for me in terms of the way that I ate. I realized that there was a voice inside of me that said, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Your mama didn't love you enough, and she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you find the love of your life, you're just going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. Let's go get some right now. Yippee! And it almost turned out that the the emotional insight and the additional compassion that I had for myself turned out to be another excuse to binge more. And I found very similar things with my clients. The people that were stressed at work would say, you know, until I can get the man's boot off of my neck and get, get free from this job and have my own business, I'm just going to have to keep on crunching. I'm going to keep on buying those chips. They'll make more. And, and so I said, hmm, this is really interesting. So being a psychologist, being a detective, figuring out what was the match that struck the fire doesn't really matter because the fire itself has a life of its own. And then I started thinking about all the consulting I was doing for big companies, and I realized that the things that they are engineering, there's, it's not really food, it's food-like substances. It's hyper-palatable concentrations of starch and salt and oil and sugar and excitotoxins, things that evolution didn't prepare us for. It's concentrations of pleasure that evolution didn't prepare us for. Mm-hmm. They're then spending billions of dollars to advertise these things in ways that make us feel like we can't live without them. And if you think, by the way, that advertising doesn't affect you, then the industry has you exactly where they want you because advertising affects you more when you think it doesn't affect you because your sales resistance is down. And so there are billions of dollars spent on convincing you that this stuff is healthy and you can't live without it. I remember talking to the VP of a major food bar manufacturer who explained to me that the biggest profitable insight they had was to take the vitamins out of the bars 
and put the money into the packaging instead to make it look healthy as opposed to be healthy, and that's perfectly legal. Mm. And then I was looking at what's happening in the addiction treatment industry, and I said, wait a minute, there's no evidence that this treatment works. There's no evidence that it's a disease, and there's, that overeating is a disease. There's no evidence that the treatment works. But they're telling you that you're powerless and you're diseased, and they're, the best you can do is just abstain one day at a time. So I was just like putting this all together, and I said, wait a minute, the emperor has no clothes. It's not what's eating me. These foods are actually ridiculously addictive. If you look at the animal studies, if you implant an electrode in the pleasure center of a rat's brain and you give them a way to short circuit the way that nature intended us to experience pleasure, they will forget about their survival needs. Like a starving rat will ignore its food to push that button thousands of times per day. And a mother rat will ignore her nursing pups to push that button thousands of times per day. Is it any wonder with these billions of dollars facing us and, and having an onslaught on our lizard brains that we all feel like we can't live without these bags and boxes and containers? And so I recognized that there was something radically different about how I would need to go about recovering. I started digging and digging and digging for anything that would feed that understanding. And I came across a guy named Jack Trimpey at Rational Recovery. And what he essentially did was shift my paradigm. I was thinking that you have to nurture your inner wounded child and love yourself back to health. But what he pointed out was that the seed of addiction is in the lizard brain, the earliest neurological structure to evolve in mammals. And the lizard brain, and now I'm kind of leaving his theory and explaining it in the way that I want to, the lizard brain doesn't know love. When it looks at something in the environment, it thinks, do I eat it, do I meet with it, or do I kill it? It's eat, mate, or kill. There's no love there. There is no there's no respect for long-term aspirations and goals. There's no respect for tribe or community or family. There's no respect for creativity or spirituality or art or delay of gratification or strategy. It's all eat, mate, or kill. And if your paradigm is that you have to love yourself more when the lizard brain gets activated, because that's what you know the chocolate bars and Doritos and everything are targeting, if that's your paradigm at the moment of impulse, no wonder you feel like you've changed your mind again. No wonder you studied a diet book all weekend and decided that you're going to commit on Monday morning only to you know, give in when there's a big hairy chocolate bar at Starbucks you know, during your lunch break. And he said, what you really need to do is dominate this thing the way that a, like, like an alpha wolf dominates the challengers for leadership. It's not, it's not a matter of loving yourself back to health. It's a matter of, it's more like capturing and caging a rabid animal and controlling it. And so I totally shifted my paradigm. And so this is the embarrassing part. And I never thought I'd be talking about this. I always thought this was very private. I decided I was going to give my lizard brain a name. I was going to call it my inner pig. I decided I was going to draw lines in the sand and say, okay, I will only ever have chocolate on a Sunday again. Then I decided that any little voice I heard in my head that suggested that I might have chocolate on anything other than a Sunday was going to be pig squeal, and that the chocolate itself would be pig slop. And all I did was a very primitive thing. I said, well, I don't eat pig slop. I don't know the farm animals tell me what to do. 
And as crude as that sounds, as ridiculous as that sounds for a sophisticated psychologist that did millions of dollars of consulting and spent 30 years studying and going to all the best people, that's what started to give me the extra control that I needed to wake up and remember who I was and the kind of person that I wanted to be around food. And, you know, long story short, it, it wasn't a miracle. It took some time. I experimented with different rules. I kept a journal for eight years about all the different things that the pig said to convince me to break my rules. And um, in the end, you know, I, I, got, I got that extra time that I needed to, to recover. It restored my sense of power. And I was asked to publish the journal, to edit it into a book and publish the journal a couple of years ago. And I did, and it sold 500,000 copies. And now we have a whole business based on it, and it's, it's pretty crazy. So that's what, got to me where I, that's what got me to where I am now. Wow, that's a hell of a story. So that that book is uh, Never Binge Again. Is that the one you're referring to? Yes, and I'll tell you at the end of the at the end of the podcast how to get that for free. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Glenn, I I truly um, dig that story, and I like the fact that you know you kind of tricked your brain. I always use this kind of analogy, and I know you have much more experience on this, but the brain knows no difference between imagination and reality, and I just I've used certain things like that as well, but I've never really heard it used in such a con context of binge eating or even trying to control your you know what you're eating. Period. Uh, it's it's just amazing. And you obviously studied this. Is this what you put the other forty thousand people through? No, the the forty thousand person study was the study about uh, chocolate oh, why, and yeah. lo- loneliness. Yeah, that was in nineteen ninety nineteen ninety eight something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and the insights from that study were interesting. I got a lot of press from that, but it didn't work to help me stop overeating or help my clients stop overeating. It was just kind of a <laughs> it was just kind of an aha moment, and it made yeah, I, I get that. Yeah, so yeah. it is very interesting in itself that those those types of foods that they were binging on that, that, that was their go to food and why they were doing that. And as you were saying that, I was kind of going through kind of my own thought process of. You know what I eat, what my you know people that I know and that I've worked with in the health and fitness industry, what they eat and kind of what they were going through during that time frame. And just very briefly, I could say, yeah, I can see that. That that makes sense. It worked. Yeah. It worked. Yeah. Very cool. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So you you know you mentioned a lot of stuff there, and it sounded like there's a couple kick in the gut moments in there and some aha moments, but um, I don't want to put words in your mouth. At is what what kick in the gut moment really kind of pushed you into um, doing what it is you're doing now, or did it at all? I mean, it's interesting. I I joke with people that I have completed my midlife crisis now officially because as I was publishing the book, I was also getting divorced and having to let go of every other business that I was involved with and that was that was a kick in the gut so I I knew that to that point in my entrepreneurial life I was doing too many things if you look at my resume it's extraordinarily successful but in actuality it's almost like I've got the Midas touch in terms of building things but I would always get dissatisfied and tear it down for some reason. So I didn't really have the success that I'd wanted to have. 
So recognizing that I got divorced and I really needed to stop diversifying myself so much and put myself into something I really believed in wholeheartedly and, and fully and like ride that horse for a good 10 or 15 years at minimum, I, I, I had that. So there was the, the divorce was a kick in the gut. I also think that the kick in the gut to change my eating I mean, I had a number of kicks in the guts to try to change my eating. I just didn't have the information to do it in the right way. Mm. So I remember I, I, I never lost a patient. I, even though I work with a lot of suicidal people, I never lost them. I, I actually wound up specializing in working with suicidal adolescents for a long time. And as long as their family would work with me, I, I seemed to be able to work it out. But I remember there was a woman that I was fond of who made an attempt and I thought to myself, well, during that session, I was thinking about, you know, I was thinking about pizza and chocolate, and I was really not 100% present with her. And I remember thinking that I could have prevented the attempt if I hadn't been so obsessed with food. And that, that was a real kick in the gut that got me to say, okay. At the time, I thought the next solution was to take medication, because I'd been resistant to taking medication. And I said, okay, I'm going to try to take medication now, because I can't let this happen. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, the the information just wasn't there. If, if I'd had the right solution, I think I would have gone after it. Right. So what are some good news stories that's come out of, specifically out of the book and out of all those people? Obviously, you sold that many books. Somebody must have gotten something out of it if it was um, I'm just growing like that and just being spread out so much. I Well, I get notes from people all the time who've lost 100 pounds or more, and that's always gratifying what's more gratifying to me is are the notes from people who've lost 20 pounds and are no longer obsessed with food and feel like they have their life back sometimes i get notes from people who just stopped binging and just feel healthier maybe they reversed their diabetes or maybe they um, maybe they didn't have any major physical change but they now feel like they've got more energy and more presence of mind to be with their children and their spouse and they feel more confident to go on job interviews and if anybody here has been involved with binge eating i'm not talking about just overeating beyond your own best judgment which this this book can definitely help you with that this this book can help you to stick with any diet even if you're just a few pounds overweight and even if you don't have a major binging problem but people who are utterly obsessed with food, you know, where you eat past the point of being full and sometimes you even eat past the point where your teeth are bleeding. Wow. It's, it's, a, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. You, you feel like you don't have a life. You feel like food is your life and you just want to get away from it and get back to, you know, all of your, you want to get back to your original self and all your goals and dreams and all the people that you love. And honestly, the most gratifying notes that I get are from people whose sense of hope and enthusiasm has been restored in life because they found this weird technique that gives them a power that nobody nobody else to that point had given them. That's that's the most gratifying moment for me. Yeah, I mean it sounds like you know, it sounds like being in prison and you basically just set them free. You give them the knowledge. They set themselves free ultimately, I I believe, but you give them the knowledge to, to do that. What's really funny 
is that it's all common sense. There's just so much right. obfuscation and mythology in our culture mm-hmm. about what addiction really is. But it, it's all common sense. Yeah. And and I, I'm I'm just a I'm a good narrator. I have the authority and credentials to get up on the stage and have people listen to me. And I have enough years studying marketing to know how to tell the message in a way that's persuasive. But basically what I'm telling people is get clear on what healthy eating means to you, put it in language, set it up in rules as opposed to guidelines. We can talk, mm-hmm. we can talk about why that's so important because there's a real mythology that says we should use guidelines instead of rules. Rules instead of guidelines, Focus yourself on that. Make sure you have a really clear bullseye. Then commit with perfection, but forgive yourself with dignity. So when you're aiming at the bullseye, you need to see the arrow going into the target before you let it go. So you're not saying, well, maybe I'll have chocolate, maybe I won't. You say, well, I'll never eat chocolate on other than a Sunday again. And that's just an example, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's nothing wrong with chocolate for some people. (laughs) And and, and I say... um, you know, then amplify your motivation. Ask yourself why why you want to do this and what happens if you don't. And then look at all of the look at all of the irrational I call them squeals, look at all the irrational reasons that your lizard brain throws at you for breaking your rules and either just ignore them or dispute them. And you know, it's it's um I didn't necessarily invent anything here. It's just common sense packaged up in a very palatable way with a really weird technique that seems to work for so many people. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I really like about this whole story from your perspective is that, as you mentioned, you've got got the pedigree. I mean, you've got, you spent all the money, you went to all the schools, you talked to all the right people, yet you were still humble enough, in, in my mind, to look, sit back and go, what I'm finding here isn't consistent with all the doctrine out there and all the text and everything that I've studied, but it makes sense. It made sense to you. And like you said, it's so simple. It's so common sense, but it works. That's just what it comes down to. And and I think that's big. I've, I've worked around doctors my entire adult life, and many of them are consummate learners. But some of them, quite frankly, they won't take the advice of a nurse because... She's, he or she's a nurse or a tech, uh, you know, whatever, because they have all the information and the people that are willing to sit back and go, yeah, I've got all this training, but that doesn't mean that's everything. It's a practice and we're learning as we go. So I really, really love that part of the story. One of the things I would like for you to share with us, because you've said it several times and I've read this multiple times through all of my books and psychology and, and just human nature is the lizard brain. Can you explain that to everybody a little bit more? Well, I can explain it badly. I'm not a neurologist and it's 30 years since I took neuroanatomy, but, but basically our brains evolved in three parts. There is the lizard brain, which was the earliest to evolve. And th- there are, I'm sure there are people that specialize in reptiles, which will tell me that I'm not entirely correct, but mostly the reptiles were not so concerned about tribe and family they they survived and thrived because they were really good at deciding whether they should eat mate or kill what they saw in the environment mm-hmm. the and that the the reptile brain is 
really kind of an extension of the spinal cord and the lower part of the brain. And then there is the mammalian brain, where, which is really the seat of emotion, which feels pain if one of the tribe members is going to be hurt. There, uh, emotion is very related to your connection to other people and you know other sentient beings. And so it, like this structure evolved on top of the lizard brain to say, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, how is that going to impact the other people that we love or the other you know, mammals that we love? Then on top of that, there evolved the neocortex or the upper part of the brain, which introduced the ability to really delay the impulse while we planned and strategized for what we wanted to accomplish in the long term. And that turned out to be another evolutionary advantage. And that's, that's what empowers us to create a weight loss goal, for example, so that we're not just thinking about how this impulse is going to impact us in the moment, but how's it going to impact us in the, in the longer term. Mm. And most of what we think of as human really resolves in the, resides in the neocortex and to an extent in the, in the emotional brain, the limbic system, the mammalian brain. It's not really what resides in the lizard brain. We need the lizard brain to survive. You can't kill it. You can't excise it from your brain. You need it to survive. The problem is that all of these industrial products have really hijacked the survival drive that's generated by the lizard brain so that we genuinely believe that we can't live without them. See, every bone in your body, if you're addicted to chocolate, every bone in your body is supposed to say, you know, hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. I don't care what Glenn is saying about pig slop and separating the human brain and the lizard brain. There's no way I can do this. Beyond that, let's say you're having chocolate every day. There's a phenomenon called downregulation. And what that means is that if you present the nervous system with a supersized stimuli over and over and over again, if anybody's ever lived near a subway, it's really interesting that you can sleep while a big loud subway train goes by because you get used to it. Your body downregulates the response. It's the same thing as if there's if there's a super sweet stimuli presented to your tongue and your your digestive system all the time. Your body downregulates the response to that. As a consequence, the things that nature intended your neurological system to give you pleasure for no longer give you pleasure. In the extreme, people feel like they need this supersized stimuli just to feel normal. Not, not to feel pleasure, but just to feel normal. And they really feel like they can't live without it. What's helpful in that situation is to remember that you're not going to be tortured forever because there is also a phenomenon of upregulation. Your, your taste buds will reestablish themselves actually in a matter of weeks. I think it's four to five weeks. Your taste buds might double in sensitivity if you mm. stop having concentrated sugar. Your neurological system will stop will start responding to more natural stimuli again. So eventually, you will get pleasure just as much, well, not quite as much pleasure. You won't get high in the way that chocolate makes you high. A lot of these things are really a drug. They're, 
you don't find these concentrations of pleasure in nature. But you will get tremendous pleasure again from an apple or a banana or a pear or a green smoothie. You just can't possibly believe that now, but it's not necessary that you it's not necessary that you feel that now. It's necessary that you think that I've got enough credibility that it's worth trying for a month to see what happens. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like so you that. Say, you say feelings aren't facts. You feel like you absolutely have to have this chocolate bar right now or you won't survive. Well, feelings aren't facts. See what ha- see what yeah. happens if you let, let go of it for, for a month and then make your decisions later on. Wow. Yeah, very powerful. Very good explanation and very powerful stuff, man. So we're at the point where we're going to pay it forward. You ready to do that? Sure. Excellent. Hey, guys, I need a huge favor from you, and this has very high potential of being very beneficial to you as well. You may or may not know, but I recently launched a new e-learning platform called Abundance and Prosperity Mastery, and this is where I combine the abundance mindset with marketing and business strategies. And I'm in the process of writing a book that specifically details my ability to find a minimum of $10,000 in additional revenue for any industry out there. And I'm convinced I can do this for any industry out there. And I do this in just 45 minutes. And this is a service that I'm currently offering to select clients. So what I'm asking of you as a Men of Abundance listener is if you would consider letting me perform this service for you in your industry, especially if it's an industry I have not worked in yet, and then just use your results as a future case study in my book, either under your business name or anonymously. And again, as a Men of Abundance listener, I won't charge you anything for this service. And all I ask in return is your written permission to use your results from my book. And if I impress you, maybe just a brief testimonial I can use as well. If you're willing and ready to do that favor for me, then send me an email to info at apmasterycoach.com that's alpha papa masterycoach.com and in the subject line put 10k book and then in the body of the email just put a brief description of what your industry is and maybe a few of your biggest challenges i will then get back with you with a calendar link so that you and i can get on the line and i can show you how i can find ten thousand dollars of revenue in your business in 45 minutes And as an added bonus, just for helping me out, I will share with you the three biggest lead generation mistakes small businesses make and how to overcome every one of them. All right, let's get back to the conversation. So share with men of abundance one to three actionable steps that they can take today. Sit down and ask yourself what's your single worst trigger food or trigger behavior might be. For me, it was chocolate. For some people, it's a behavior. For example, I've got people who will make a rule that says, I will never eat standing up again. Or I'll always put my fork down between bites. That can be really powerful. Sometimes you make a rule that's adding a behavior or a routine to your system. So I will always start my day with 32 ounces of pure spring water. Or I will always have five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. Sometimes it's a conditional rule. I will only have read pretzels in Major League Baseball parks again. Whatever it is, figure out what your single worst trigger is and make one rule and tell yourself you're just going to learn how to play this game. This is a different structure of mind that you're used to. And you might not lose weight immediately, but you will restore your sense of power and hope 
a lot of people feel hopeless about ever fixing the eating problem. This restores your sense of power and hope. Make that rule, commit to it, and then tell yourself that it's okay that you have cravings. It's okay that you feel anxiety about whether you can do this or not. You, you're of two minds. There's you and then there's your lizard brain. Come up with a name for your lizard brain. It doesn't have to be a pig. Some people call it their food monster. Some people call it their inner B-I-T-C-H. Whatever it is, mm-hmm. come up with a name. Resolve that you're going to assign the cravings to whatever that name is. I, I don't crave chocolate. My pig does. Or you hear a thought in your head that says, I'm really, really nervous. I'm going to break this rule. Change the language and say, my pig really, really wants me to break this rule, but I'm not going to. And if you keep acknowledging things through that algorithm, you will have committed to separating your constructive versus your destructive thoughts about food. And what that does is it really restores your sense of free will so that you can choose not to have it. You can also choose to have it if you want to. But it really, it, it eradicates the sense of hopelessness and powerlessness that permeates so much of how people feel about eating today. And that's, that's the most practical advice that I could give you. Follow that for a couple of weeks to a couple of months. And then once you feel like you've got the ability to make a rule and stick to it, make adjustments so that you can achieve your health and fitness goals. Very cool. Absolutely love that. What daily habits make up the biggest impact in your life, Glenn? Journaling is a really big deal for me. When I start the day with even a couple of sentences on paper about what I'm facing, what resistance I have to overcome it, and what the single biggest win would be for me that day, I have a much more productive day, and my major accomplishments are just stringing stringing together one productive day after the next. I try to be a base hitter rather than a home run hitter. Occasionally I hit a home run, but if I keep getting on base, I find I score pretty consistently. That makes a big deal difference. I'm a fan of exercise classes. I go to CrossFit and yoga. I like to get outside every day for a little bit. And I start every day with a big green smoothie, usually with um, bananas and cucumbers and kale. Mm. Yeah, sounds cool. Yeah, sounds really good. You know, journaling, the other thing that journaling does for me is when I have that monkey chatter, I call it in my head, and I just, like, I'm trying to sleep or something, and it usually comes around that time, and I just can't focus, and I just start writing all that stuff down. And I find once I get it out of my head and onto paper, it just, it literally just clears all the clutter out of my head and allows me to function and go to sleep or whatever it is that I'm doing. Yeah. It helps you to do that for a couple of reasons. Words are the food of the intellect. And so when you put things in black and white, your adult ego with all of his experience can act on it and you can stop having the emotional reaction that uh, that occurs when you're just having things rattle around in your short-term memory. The other thing is that there might be some important things that you have to take care of. And David Allen says the mind is a great place for having ideas, but it's a horrible place to hold ideas. Mm. There are only so many things we can keep in our mind at one time. And if you are a responsible adult trying to make a difference in the world in one way or another, you're going to be trying to carry too many things in your head, and that's going to create anxiety. Yeah, and on that note, I recently saw a a short documentary about how, you know, we believe as we get older, we lose some of our memory. But the fact of the matter is it's really just that we have so much in there, and we have to let it out. We have to get it out and, and 
basically like a hard drive. Allow space for more for you to remember the things that you want to remember. And there's many techniques behind that as well. I've talked to other guys who are memory specialists and what, and this is kind of where I'm getting some of this from. But what are your thoughts on that? My mind is so full it hurts me on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not familiar with that research, but it makes sense to me. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So what are you reading or listening to that you would recommend to our abundant leaders and why? I am, what am I currently reading? I am currently reading uh, one of my competitors' books. Books is called The Binge Code. And there's a lot of interesting information in there that I think is complementary to what I'm doing, and I'm happy about that. I am also reading Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut just for something that's fun. And one of my favorite books is How to Lead an Inspired Life by Jim Rohn, which is really a book. book. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, go go on. Explain the book a little bit more. It's been years since I've read it. It's a book about goal setting, but it's written in a very soulful way. And I don't think there's anything radically different about the techniques that he offers, mm-hmm. but the book just really gives you permission and captures your soul and the goals that you set and makes you feel like you're living an inspired life. It's, I, I'll tell you, when I when I got divorced, I had a 3,600-square-foot house on three acres, and I had maybe 5,000 books. I decided I was going to give all the books to Goodwill because I wasn't read except for the ones that I might read and reread. And I let myself take 10 books with me from New Hampshire to Portland, Oregon. And How to Lead an Inspired Life was one of them. Yeah. With Jim Rohn, it's, it's, the content is amazing, but it's the delivery. He's he's really, really skilled at just, like you said, making it just sound like a very peaceful conversation in your head. <laughs> I just love listening yeah. to him and reading his stuff. Like, like a good preacher. Yeah, exactly. So what do you feel holds most people back from living a life of true abundance, Glenn? Fear. I, th- I think Mark Twain said, was it Mark Twain? He said he worried about a million things over the course of his life, most of which never happened. Mm. Uh, you know, Wayne Gretzky said you miss 100% of the shots that you never take. And I think you put that all together. And I also think people don't understand, this is a Jim Rohn quote, that a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. And freedom sits on top of discipline. Discipline doesn't interfere with your freedom. You can't drive freely through the city without the discipline of knowing the rules of the road. If you don't know to stop at a traffic light or a stop sign, if you don't know who has the right of way, your freedom is going to be radically restricted. You have to know the rules of the road. You've got to study them. You have to have the discipline to obey them in order to go where you want to go in this world. A jazz musician can't freely improvise unless they understand the structure of music and they've practiced their skills. It's the discipline of practicing the skills and studying the structure of music that empowers them to express their soul. A life of discipline is better than a life of regret. So choose a new discipline and keep adding it to your life month in and month out. And before you know it, you won't recognize the guy in the mirror. Wow. Very, very powerful. Absolutely love that. So what does living a life of abundance mean to you? It means... Well, very concretely, it means letting nothing stop me from helping a million people a year to stop binge eating. Right now, that's, I, I really believe that if I do that, that everything else in my life will fall into place. 
I don't work. I mean, I pay attention to money, but I don't worry that much about money. I am paying attention to love. I guess I guess I still worry a little bit about love, <laughs> but 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 it's if I really focus on being the best that I can be to help the masses in this way and give them the benefit of my experience, then I'm the, the opposite of that would be being frightened of not having enough money or being unloved or being, um, you know, abandoned in some way. But the more that I focus on helping as many people as I can, the more good things seem to come to me. And I don't really need that much. Like I don't, I don't have to be a multimillionaire. I, I probably will be at some point, but I don't really have to be. It's, yeah. it's just, you know, I get to, I get to work out. There's nature. Mm-hmm. There are people that I connect with. I have great work to do. I'm a lucky guy. Yeah, I feel you on that. Absolutely. I really dig that. So we are definitely going to have neverbingeagain.com linked up in the show notes. Um, and what else did we not talk about today that you want to ensure that our abundant leaders get out of our conversation? Well, I want to tell them what they can get at neverbingeagain.com for free because it's kind of important to put it all together. This is a... First of all, you get a copy of the book. So if you go to neverbingeagain.com and you click on the big red button and you sign up for the reader bonuses, we'll get you a copy of, in, in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format of the, you know, the full book in and of itself. No charge for that. If you want the paperback or the audible, there is a charge for that, but there's no charge for the, for the electronic format. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, this is a really weird theory in the abstract. It sounds harsh. It sounds crazy but it's not. And if you listen to me coaching people through it, you will hear how compassionate it is and how well it works. So I've recorded literally dozens of free sessions that you can download and listen to at your leisure in the same way that you listen to a podcast. That's also available for free at the same place, big red button, click the, click the reader sign up button. And the last thing that we have there that'll be helpful is a set of food plan templates to get you started with any particular dietary philosophy that you want to work on. So if you're a low carb or a high carb or a macrobiotic or a vegan or a point counter, ketogenic, whatever it is that you follow, will get you started with a set of sample rules that you might want to consider adopting. You need to modify them to meet your own needs. You don't want to just follow someone else's rules because then your pig will say, oh, that guy's diet it was okay but it was screwed up in this particular way and so we might as well binge until we find another one you need to take responsibility for your own plan and decide what you think is really healthy with eating and then and then adopt that and go forward with that that's what you get so neverbingeagain.com click the big red button and sign up for the reader bonuses well I really appreciate that and uh, this all kind of rolls back to what I originally started talking about when, when, I, when I mentioned the book was that it's important for you to find out, um, you know, what works best for you. And you have so many different options there in reference to what their preference is. And I really, really, I like that because it's not one size fits all type of thing. But then the concept all rolls in there together. And man, thanks for that. I, I really appreciate that. I know a lot are going to get, a lot of people are going to get a lot out of that. And I'm looking forward to hearing the stories back. Uh, about their experience with what they're going to find at neverbingeagain.com. So, Glenn, 
again, truly appreciate your time. Great information. I learned a lot. I know everybody else out there did as well. This is one to go back and listen to again and take notes. Um, so I will certainly be doing that, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Wally. This was great. Excellent. So go out and live your life of abundance. Keep paying it forward, and aloha. All right, guys, there you have it once again, yet another great conversation, other techniques to get control of your health, get control of your binge eating. If that does, if you do fall into that category or somebody that you know falls into that category, you know what? Sometimes when we have people that are struggling in our lives and we see that, it's sometimes difficult to have the conversation with them. But it takes a strong friend, it takes a loving friend, it takes a very strong person to sit somebody down and have that conversation with them. Have that hard conversation with the people that you love. And if you just know that you can't have that conversation with them, I think one of the best things to do, the next best thing to do, is one to direct them to a professional. And many of the featured guests on this show are professionals in their own field. Dr. Livingston is obviously a professional who can help people in this area. So at the very least, introduce people to this conversation. If, you're, if you know that you're going to have a hard time having that conversation, say, hey, I heard something today that I think maybe you need to listen to that might help you. It may or may not, but heck, give it a listen and see what it'll do for you or, you know, something like that. Anyway, go out and live your life of abundance and make sure to pay it forward.